in chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. In our Bibles this morning. And in turning here, we are returning to the conclusion of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And we are returning to one of the most sober passages in all of the Scripture. And the sobriety of the finished of last week's message uh, never left me during this week of preparation. As I realized there is no way to be faithful to a passage like the one before us again this morning with with anything that resembles a, a lighter mood in terms of even the delivery. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity into the hearts of every man. And men generally know that this life can't be all that there is. I mean, this 70 years or 80 years or what ends up being far less for many um, th this, this life is so short. James, you remember, wrote that our life is even a vapor that appears for a little time and, and vanishes away. We don't really like to think of it that way while we're living it. But there are times when, when we pause to think about where we're at. I mean, even if you pause to think about this morning, where are you at in that, you know, 70 to 80 year scheme what percentage of those years are already passed and the reality is it doesn't matter how old you are when you think in terms of percentage of the total years that i have it seems like it has just flown by we sometimes will stop to consider when uh, someone young married or a teen or a child dies uh, prematurely from our vantage point and and we do uh, just almost it takes our breath away at least for a time one athlete was talking about a friend that was killed in a, a car wreck in a storm and just said it all seems so stupid that's how he referred to it Th this can't be all there is and and actually the human psyche i mean man's constitution knows that we know it because we're made in the image of an immortal God. He's put it in our hearts. But the fact is, so few do anything to really prepare for eternity. Really just kind of try to feel their way through this whole thing of, called life. And since you know they are sure there's life after this, because this can't be it, they just assume that in the vast majority of the cases, if not everybody, I mean, what's after this life, it has to be pleasant, it has to be wonderful. So as we said in our previous message here last week, whenever someone dies, it's just common for everyone to talk about them being in a better place or them looking down on us or something of that sort. But the teaching of Jesus, if it's really heard, is a shocking interruption of all of that. 
The conclusion of his message, when I talk about his message, it started, remember, all the way back in chapter 5. And it's been a continuous sermon through chapter 6 and now into chapter 7. And, and we entered into the conclusion of that sermon starting in verse number 13 last week. And if you remember verses 13 and 14, Jesus said that there are two distinctive pathways and they lead to two different eternal destinations. But what really stands out is that it is many. If you look at it again in verse 13, Jesus said it's many that are on the path to eternal destruction. And then in contrast, what really is supposed to stand out is that it is few, in verse 14, that find the path that leads to life. And again, that is just not the way the common man thinks about the matter. The common person does not think most people are headed to eternal destruction. And only a few are headed to eternal life in heaven. They think that if anyone were to end up in hell, after all, it'll, it would be very few, relatively speaking, of the most vile sinners that the world has ever known. Anybody ends up there, it's, it's some of them. And one influence which has contributed to the thinking on the part of the crowds of, of, of people in our country is the reality mentioned in verse number 15, if you'll look there, that is the ministry of false prophets. And false prophets actually will stand up in funerals, in some cases even in Christian churches, and have nothing to say about the departed one's relationship with God through Christ or anything about a saving faith in Christ, but they will say things like, and I've heard them like I'm certain you have, they will say things like, you know, so-and-so loved his family, he wasn't perfect, but he loved his family, and, and he will be all right. And we today, you know, here, we aren't perfect, but we love each other, and we will be all right. And that kind of rhetoric is so far removed from what Jesus taught that it's one witness to their falsehood. And the fruit of that falsehood is where Jesus goes in verses 16 through 20. The influence of false teachers leaves those who follow him with just no fear about a carefree lifestyle that is void of any discernible marks of being a loyal disciple of Jesus Christ. So you will know them by their fruits, even by the fruit of those that listen to them, who don't have any fear about living the way they want to live. Completely apart from marks of discipleship. When our discussions are talking about false teachers, I think we might have a tendency, now I'm talking about we that, you know, come to an independent fundamental Baptist church. Okay? And I'm saying that because that is all I have ever known in terms of my own experience. Okay? From before I was born, my dad was assistant pastor in an independent fundamental Baptist church, very much resembling this one. And that's in my entire experience. And we tend to think about, we hear like false prophets, you know, that, that, that the whole arena of what we're talking about here is so far away from us and it can't be really close to hand at all. But the next step forward in our text is going to really zero in on a setting like a Christian church where Christian doctrine is taught and Christian service is done. 
And actually one pastor, commentator, seminary teacher that died back in 1952. He sounded a, a massive warning all the way back then when he wrote, never were there so many millions of nominal Christians on earth as there are today. Never was there such a small percentage of real ones. We seriously doubt, I'm continuing to quote, we seriously doubt whether there has ever been a time in the history of the Christian era where there were such a multitude of deceived souls within the churches who verily believe that all is well with their souls when in fact the wrath of God abideth on them. And he said we know of no single thing better calculated to undeceive them. I'm not even sure that's a word, but he used it. We know of no better thing calculated to undeceive them than a full and faithful exposition of the closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's right where we are. And if it seems to anyone like that was an extremist, you know, exaggerating, I want you to notice right here in Matthew 7 and verse 22, That Jesus said it is many, very first word, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, thy name cast out devils, thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. According to Jesus, listen, according to Jesus, many people die mistaken about their eternal destiny. Many people die actually mistaken about their eternal destiny. They think they're okay and they're not. And I think you're aware that if You try to warn people about this reality. You won't talk to very many before somebody calls you judgmental. Right? And maybe some other labels. And will actually tell you why your type is really the big problem with our society. And I don't mean to just you know, be the sky is falling, but I don't think we're that far away from even saying some things I've said this morning to be considered hate speech and have to be censored in our own country. And what people will say will be things like, it's not up to you to do what? It's not up to you to judge. And taken on its own, there is a sense in which that statement is really true, largely true. None of us will be the judge. That all men or any particular man stands before. And I know that we're familiar with this, but I think we just ought to remind ourselves of the identity of the judge. Because it is stated very clearly right here. Look at verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, 
Lord, Lord. Okay, or verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. And all of these personal pronouns in verse 23, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So the Jesus who is preaching this sermon is saying, I'm the one you're going to stand before. And I will be the judge. Paul was in the midst of a pagan culture that acknowledged the existence of all kinds of so-called deities. And he pointed them to the one true God and he called them to repent. And he added in Acts chapter 17, then verse 31, that God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. That's the man, the one who was died and buried, but who rose again. That's the one God has appointed to be the judge of all men. Jesus said that in John chapter 5. He said, The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth the Son, he that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. So when someone says, and actually a celebrity news woman this week said, I don't self-identify as a Christian, but I do believe in God. Okay, tacking on that last phrase, I do believe in God, while not honoring Jesus Christ as the Son of God, it isn't okay. And that lady, and every man, woman, child that has ever lived, will someday stand before Jesus Christ himself. He's the judge. And... This passage not only identifies the judge, but it identifies the kind of people who are deceived about their eternal destiny. And they are people that at least make the right profession regarding Jesus' identity. Okay, in verse 21, again, they are represented as calling Jesus by what title? They call him Lord. And in verse 22, they're described the same way. They refer to Jesus as, as Lord. Now, the foundational sense of the expression Lord is the idea of master or owner. Later in Matthew, you don't need to turn, but later in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 8, it refers to the owner of a donkey. Same expression. But when it is used of Jesus, there is additional implication in the word that is found in many texts. And I do want to have you go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 45. There, there are multiple texts that we could turn to to point to the, the fullness of the concept of Lord when it's referring to Jesus. But I'm going to just have one Old Testament text, and then we're going to look at one New Testament text that our, these texts will be connected and help us nail it down and even further the flow of our message. We're, we're turning uh, here to Isaiah. I want to ultimately see verse 23, but just back up, if you will, to verse 18. We won't read all in between, but look at verse number 18, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. For thus saith the Lord, that's the word we're even looking at, 
the Hebrew expression. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is none else. Right? So you get an idea of who we're talking about. Now look at verse 22. This Lord, same speaker, says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. All right? Now, right at that point, Point, and some of you, your minds, I trust, are already getting ahead of me. And I want to have you turn to the companion text in the New Testament, which is Philippians chapter 2. All right, this Lord that made the heavens, this Lord is the one that you look to to be saved. This is the Lord to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. And Philippians chapter 2 identifies this one very clearly. Look at chapter 2, and we're going to start back in the familiar words of verse 5, because we actually get the personal title. Verse number 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is who? Is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again, you see this theme. The Son is glorified when his own identity as God is confessed. And the Father is glorified when the Son is glorified. All right, so with, with this, and I've just hit these two texts that are connected. There are dozens of them. All right? To call Jesus Lord is not merely to call him Master. To call Jesus Lord includes that concept, but it is to call him God. He's the master because he's God himself. And I want us to go back now with Matthew chapter 7. Back to Matthew chapter 7. And while you're turning there, of course, there are people that say Jesus never claimed to be God. <laughs> well, a passage like this disabuses them of that error, right? Jesus self-identifies as the Lord. And that's a witness that he claimed to be God. There are many more texts where he does. But the fact is that the people Jesus warned about in Matthew 7 that are mistaken about their eternal destiny, they are people who got this right. They are people who profess that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord, is God, is what the Scripture declares him to be. They profess that. 
They're calling him Lord. And in addition to that identity marker, the people Jesus warned about are people that secondly, as you notice, claim to have done ministry in his name. All right, and when you look at the kind of ministries that they claim to have done, some try to, you know, wrestle with that. You know, we've prophesied, we've cast out demons, we've done miracles. Um, if, you, if you take those expressions together, maybe it's a, a certain type of, uh, of people that are claiming certain supernatural things. But I don't believe that is to be the primary focus. It's not just what are the activities. But what's repeated here is that the ministerial activity was done in whose name? Look at it again. Verse 22. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And it seems to be repeated for emphasis. And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. So it's not just the activity, but it's the activity done in his name. This could be rightfully extended out to teaching Sunday school or children's church in Jesus' name. Singing in the choir, playing in the orchestra, working in vacation Bible school in Jesus' name. This can be extended out to full-time ministry positions like teaching in a Christian school, traveling around the country as an evangelist, working in a parachurch ministry. This could be extended right to pastoring a church and preaching from the pulpit in Jesus' name. People got his identity right. They professed his identity correct. Sound doctrine, if you will, about that at least. And they did ministerial service in his name. Perhaps the most well-known message of the Great Awakening and the American colonies, 1730s and 40s, was Jonathan Edwards' sermon. And many of you are thinking of it right now. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I think that was the most well-known. But another message that was used to somewhat like spark um, the, some of the local awakenings into kind of more of a regional fire of revival, so to speak. One message that was used in that way was a sermon preached by Gilbert Tennant. He actually traveled around with George Whitfield. After Whitfield left, he retraced some of his steps after he was gone. And Gilbert was a Presbyterian minister in a day when the conversion experience was actually not something generally probed with a minister before he was licensed, licensed to preach. One historian noted what others just generally affirmed. I'm quoting. He said, they insisted, they insisted that ministers should be men of good character, of sound theology, and adequately trained, but they did not seek for evidences of their conversion and call. And Gilbert Tennant began to be very burdened about the effects of men in the pulpit who had never been born again. And he was, again, as some summarized, he was unsparing in his sermon, 
exposing men who had, this is what he would preach, no experience of a special work of the Holy Ghost upon their souls. Good men, sound theology, adequately trained. But they knew nothing of the work of the Holy Spirit on their inner man. And he actually compared them to Satan transformed into an angel of light, as Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians. And the debate that ensued was heated, but it helped raise awareness for all men that just having right doctrine and being mostly religious in form and structure and even identifying as a Christian doesn't mean you'll be accepted by God. Gilbert Tennant's sermon was entitled The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. The danger of an unconverted pastor was the idea. And when you put the warnings of Jesus' own words together, again, you come to the sober conclusion that many people that got the identity of Jesus right Many people that have done ministry of some sort in Jesus' name, many of those kind of people die thinking that they are okay with God, but in the end, they end up being rejected by Jesus himself. And the criteria Jesus cited here as a definitive mark of a true disciple is actually the practice of the life. The private practice of the life. Look again in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It is literally not what you say, but what you do. It is not the lips, it is the life. It's not saying Lord, but it's doing the will of the Father. And I should digress just briefly to add that no one should think even by this emphasis, that somehow Jesus is pitting salvation by grace against salvation by works. The contrast here is not merit earned by works versus grace through faith. The contrast is between the profession and the way of life. That's the contrast. Again, it isn't the lips. It's the life. In verse 22 again, it's not just a matter of public ministry. But, verse 23, it's the matter of private life. I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. He's talking about people whose private life just simply does not match up to the public presentation. They've been presenting themselves in the church community this way for so long. But what's going on in the bedroom and in the car 
and in the private places of their life is just not at all what they've been presenting for all this time. And you know, there's some celebrated big names on big Christian ministry platforms that have had private lives substantially different than their, than their public presentation. But brethren, it isn't just the big names. I remember preaching in an evangelistic setting where teens from several churches were present, and I met a pastor, seemed, you know, genuine, and yet he was awkward to a degree that I just, that I did take note of. I didn't think about it for months until we were actually preparing to go back about a year later, and I was going to preach in the same place, and I asked about churches that were coming, and I said something to the one organizing it about so-and-so. And that's when I heard he was out of the ministry because his 18-year-old son had found his dad's stash of pornography. Preacher's son found preacher dad's stash of pornography. So I wonder something wasn't right. I took teens on a missions trip to do a vacation Bible school and a teen rally in a church where the pastor seemed really earnest about evangelism, but I, I felt awkward the whole time we were there. But again, you move on. We're not all the same, right? I'm odd to some of you, right? You're odd to me. So we move on, but there was something uncertain, and then I found out that he's out of the ministry because he was caught kissing a Bible college girl in the church basement, and that type of activity had been going on with multiple other girls. To my horror, I found out he's now an assistant pastor in California. Even after all that. I was out making evangelistic visits with a deacon in a large church, and he told me of visiting with a former assistant pastor who he seemed to have a great zeal for soul winning. And the day came when that assistant pastor was arrested for a series of breaking and entering into private homes and stealing various items out of homes and garages. And later, that man acknowledged that under his guilt for being a thief, he would actually multiply his efforts at evangelism. So the one man in the church most known for evangelism was trying to make up for his being a thief. And the way he handled his guilt was to try to go out and tell more people about Jesus. I'm giving you just a few of, of ones that I know personally, and none of them are big names. Do I know that those private activities are proof positive that they're not saved? I don't know that. But I know that any and all of us better take the warning of Jesus seriously. And I would add again for clarification that Jesus isn't calling for a perfect private life where there are no inconsistencies. That doesn't exist. That doesn't exist among saved men. It doesn't exist among heroes of men. But what he is talking about is overall agendas and pursuits and focus and patterns. What is going on as a whole? I would say 
that we ought to be warned that one sin protected and coddled and embraced over the long haul is a witness that something is really, really wrong, no matter what the profession. The absence of compulsion to do right, to do what you well know is right, and, and just making peace with a pattern of disobedience is a witness to the fact that something is wrong, no matter what the profession. The Lord said to people that got the doctrine right about his identity and people who had done service in his name, he said to them, I never knew you. Now, I really want to ask this morning, do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Not just could you pass a Bible doctrines test about the identity of Jesus. And not just have you gladly served in some capacity with the Christian community. But do you know him? I mean, is there anything in your heart that says something like, I have none in heaven but you. And there's none on earth that I desire like I desire you. And even when you know, like even when you know, I mean, you a message like this or somebody that loves you and cares for you and they confront you and they would even say something to you like, do you know the Lord? Son, do you know the Lord? Or daughter, I love you dearly, but do you know the Lord? Mom, dad, friend. I'm not trying to be unkind and pick at you, but I'm, I'm just, I listen and I watch, and I just ask, do you know the Lord? Do you even know him? I'm concerned. And, and can you, when somebody even says that to you, would you say, I understand why you're saying it. I know I'm not what I ought to be. But Jesus himself said something like that to Peter, right? Because Peter had made a big-time boast, as big as it is. Though all men deny you, all these, right? Even these fellow apostles all around me, though they all deny you, I never will. And then perhaps nobody from the position he was in ever denied the Lord so dramatically. And had to have the Lord face to face say to him, do you love me? And he kind of averts in the answers, you know the Greek words there, do you agape me? And Lord, you know I fled. Oh, I'm, I'm, you know I really like you. And he asks again. And he asks a third time, and then he changes. And he's like, are you even really warmly affectionate to me? And Peter had no defense. But he did say, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. I understand why we're here. I understand why somebody would have a question about me. 
by alone, privately, between the Lord and you. Can you say, as messed up as I am, Lord, you know that I love you. I'm sorry I'm not what I ought to be. Far from it. But you know I love you. A message like this could unsettle a genuine believer, and I'm aware of that. But I would just say, take stock of your heart attitude towards the Lord. And be reminded that a broken and contrite spirit the Lord has never despised. But dear friend, if your heart doesn't go out to him and there is no real compulsion from the inside, I'm not just talking about what parents put on you or what social factors put on you or what loss of standing or whatever else it may be. But I'm talking about this. Your heart doesn't really go out to him and there's no real compulsion from the inside to live in obedience. You are in danger. He said so. And he preached this way to be a means of grace to stop you in your tracks. And consider what path are you really on this very day? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? It's shocking, it really is. It's the kind of thing that it really, if I, if I had said a very small percentage of what I said this morning without opening the Bible and letting you see that Jesus said it, you might think that Pastor Fuller has some kind of agenda. Pastor Fuller is extreme, he's exaggerating, he's whatever. I don't mean that you'd be ugly to me, I just know that, I mean, that's our tendency. But brethren, every one of us has to wrestle with the words of God preached from the Savior himself. And he keeps making the contrast many and few. And not the lips, but the life. Not the life as earning, but the life as reflection of relationship with him. If you're here this morning and you just say, I know, I know what it is for God himself to have confronted me. Like John Newton wrote, those grace that taught my heart to fear. I recognize fearing the state I was in as a sign of his grace. And my fears relieved and pointed me to Christ. And I'm not anywhere close but I'm so thankful that I know something real and genuine. Thank him for that. Thank him for his saving grace in your life. And plead with him to forgive you and to give you grace to love him more and it to be more evident to his honor and glory. But I want to ask, and you know I don't, 
handle things the same way every time. I want to ask with everyone else's heads bowed.